you would, take out your Bibles and turn with me to Mark, the Gospel according to Mark, and we're going to be in chapter 2, verses 18 through 22 this morning. Do y'all like to look at bumper stickers on other people's cars? I, I, I really find it, it, it makes the time pass at a red light, doesn't it, to read bumper stickers. And one of the most uh, um, common bumper sticker out there I've seen is, uh, you've seen it, coexist, right? All the different religious symbols out there. You know, it's, 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 it's in neon light saying, can't we all get along? It also is saying, hey, after all, aren't different religions just different paths to the same God, the same goal in life? Well, in our text this morning, Jesus is going to slap a coexist bumper sticker on our car, so to speak. The coexisting he will speak about will not be about different religions, but rather the coexistence of joy and himself. In other words, Jesus is going to talk about joy in his presence. Here we are at number eight in our series, Jesus According to the Bible, an exposition of the Gospel of Mark, where we are considering who Jesus is, what Jesus came to do, and how we should respond to the person and work of Jesus. Well, what have we learned so far? Well, Mark just starts it off right at the beginning, doesn't he? The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He declares that Jesus is the king as Jesus announces that the kingdom is at hand. Jesus goes around declaring the gospel and demonstrating his authority to call men, to teach, to heal, and to forgive. Now you'd think that this declaration of good news would be well received. But actually, we're starting to see Jesus face opposition. Criticism and conflict that we've seen thus far have to do with the forgiveness of sins. Who does he think he is? Only God can forgive sins. And also, who does he think he is dining, eating, enjoying fellowship with sinners? Well, last week we saw that Jesus was criticized for eating with tax collectors and sinners. Just as it was expected that a doctor should associate with sick people, so it should be expected that Jesus would mix with sinners. The whole purpose of Jesus' coming was to call such sinners to a change of heart and life. Those who were self-righteous and self-satisfied had nothing, he had nothing to offer them. For the only way to enter this kingdom that Jesus was announcing, this kingdom of God, is, is through a... Uh, as a self-confessed sinner. When Jesus says, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners, he uses both terms ironically, as we saw. He's saying that the word righteous means self-righteous, and that here the word sinners means people who know they are sinful and are in need of a savior. In doing this, Jesus is turning the corrupted religion of his day on its head. So much for an introduction. Let's get into the text. As we get into the text, let's go to the author of the text, 
the author of these words and ask for his help. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you indeed provide for your people in every way where we need provision. And Father, we thank you that you've provided your word. Father, these aren't just words on a page. They are the living and true word from your mouth. So Father, would you enable us to understand what is before us? And would you enable us to apply the teaching? Father, may your word before us be our rule. May your Holy Spirit be our only teacher. And may your greater glory be our supreme concern. For we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Join with me now as I read chapter 2, verses 18 through 22. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came to him, came and said to him, Why did John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast? But your disciples do not fast. And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guest fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them. And then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. Our text before us presents us with a complaint, a claim, and a call. Well, let's unpack God's word together. Another complaint. Another complaint. This time, notice, it's from people. It's not the religious leaders. I mean, we often think it's, oh, it's the religious leaders who had a problem with Jesus. Well, here we see just people have a problem with Jesus. Conflict and criticism via a complaint. It's the third conflict we've seen. As I mentioned earlier, there was the conflict over who does Jesus think he is forgiving someone of their sin? Who does Jesus think he is um, um, eating with sinners? And who does Jesus think he is by not teaching his disciples to fast? This question, is it sincere Or is it rather a provocative question with veiled criticism? Well, I think the pattern has been established. It's it's not a sincere question. They're, They're saying in their question, Jesus, you are not a holy man. You are not the religious leader that you should be because your disciples are not fasting. Well, well, what is fasting? Well, it's going without. And typically it's going without food. As we heard that description of the Day of Atonement, it would be an all-day fast, an all-day fast to to, uh, not eat on that day. And indeed, that fast was required in the law of Moses only on the Day of Atonement that would happen once a year. And it's an expression of sorrow 
primarily sorrow for sin. John's disciples had been fasting, whether that's because John is is been away and is arrested, we don't know, or whether that's just in response to John's ongoing call for repentance, baptism of repentance. But the Pharisees, that group of uh, religious uh, teachers and scribes, they they find um, that once a year is not enough. Not once a year. How about twice a year? How about quarterly? You know, maybe monthly. No, how about twice a week? You see, they added to this requirement and they prescribed fasting twice a week on Mondays and on Thursdays. So the question we've got to ask ourselves is, what does God require? And the law of Moses says fast on the day of atonement. But, you know, here they are fasting twice a week. You know, going beyond scripture is as equally dangerous as not uh, reaching, as it were, Scripture. It's adding as well as taking away that the end of Scripture warns us is exceedingly dangerous. Don't add to God's Word. Don't take away from God's Word. And here is a sincere attempt to be honoring to God, and yet it's going beyond the scriptural requirement. To insist on, do, on what God has not insisted on is to seek to outdo God. And who wants to get in a race with God? Well, what's the purpose of fasting? What's the purpose? As with any spiritual discipline, what is the purpose? Why fasting? Well, it's not a means of self-improvement. It's rather a means of getting you close. Getting you close to God. To focus in. And the issue, the purpose of fasting, and Jesus will commend fasting. He's not against fasting. He assumes Christians will fast. You remember in the Sermon on the Mount, and and when you fast, do not be like? He's assuming that that will take place. And so what is the purpose of that fasting? And what is the attitude behind it? Is it the got to or is it the get to? Because if fasting is a means of getting to God and to the Savior, then it should be a get to, not a got to. Have you ever noticed the expression on your face, I've got to do this, versus I get to do this? Jesus is going to unfold before us the motivation for fasting and not fasting. A.W. Tozer in his book, The Pursuit of God, writes this, the Bible is not an end in itself, but means to bring us into an intimate and satisfying knowledge of God that we may enter into Him, that we may delight in His presence, may taste and know the inner sweetness of the very God Himself. Even though Tozer is talking about the Bible, this could be equally applied to any spiritual discipline and here fasting. It's a, not an end in and of itself, but rather a means to bring us into a close and intimate relationship with God himself. And so when asked this question, Jesus could have answered and rested his case by just saying, it is written, and he would have quoted Leviticus on the Day of Atonement. It is written. But as he often does, Jesus doesn't respond to a question without also taking this as an opportunity to ask a question. And this is particularly the case when that question is a veiled criticism, complaint, 
or accusation as it is here. Jesus doesn't wait for an answer from them, but rather provides the answer. And in doing so, he makes another claim. And he already has claimed that he has the authority to forgive sin. He's already claimed that the, uh, uh, the, the physician, um, that no one, uh, that he is the physician meeting with the sick. And here he makes an amazing, an astounding, an astonishing claim. Look with me in verse 19. Jesus asked that question, can the wedding guest fast while the bridegroom is with them? Immediately in Jesus's question and then his subsequent answer, we are taken to the picture of a wedding, of a wedding with a bride and groom and guest and a ceremony and a celebration. Jesus brings up this picture of the wedding. As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. And in that day and age, the wedding would last the celebration a week. And during that time, you were exempt from religious duties. It was a highlight of the culture's social life, this wedding of a man and a woman, as Jesus rightly went back to the beginning of a God joining a man and a woman. And in doing this, he's not just painting the picture of a wedding. He's making this astonishing claim. He's saying as he goes, as long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. Well, Jesus is saying, I am the bridegroom. It's an utterly breathtaking and staggering claim because the Jews would be familiar with the scriptures that we call the Old Testament and they would just refer to the scriptures and they knew that the Lord, Yahweh, God's covenant name who had entered into relationship with his people after rescuing them from Egypt, slavery in Egypt, he was known as Israel's husband as Israel's bridegroom. By Jesus placing the center of attention on the bridegroom and the center of attention on him, he is saying, I am the bridegroom. And in doing so, he is saying, I am God. Here, present with you. Now again, this Mark is not a mystery. We, we know the answer at the beginning. And for Mark's readers, then and now, we are getting to know who Jesus is, what he came to do. And as we go along, we are finding out how we should respond to who Jesus is and what he came to do. And so there are some simple but rather earth-shaking implications of Jesus's claim. The birds, that singing, that, that group in the 1960s came up with a, uh, a uh, song, I believe it's called Turn, 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 when they basically just copied Ecclesiastes 3, right? And it said there's a time for everything, right? A, a season for everything under heaven, right? Y'all have heard that, a time to, 
to plant and a time to harvest, a time to scatter, a time to gather, a kind to kill and a kind to not kill, a time to love and a time to hate. Everything, there is a season and a time for everything under heaven. So Jesus is saying this when he goes on to say, if the bridegroom, if I'm here with you, it's not time to fast. But if the bridegroom is taken away, then you can fast. Here's what Jesus is saying. And children, I'm thinking of you when I say this. Here's what Jesus is saying. When I'm here, you are to be happy. And when I'm not here, you are to be sad. That is an amazing claim, isn't it? And I hope, if you haven't already, that later today you will read the two quotes, one from C.S. Lewis and one from Sam Harris, about the magnitude of Jesus' claims. Jesus saying, if I'm with you, you're happy. And if I'm not with you, you're, you're sad. That is astounding. Because to fast in Jesus' presence, to be unhappy, to be sorrowful, to mourn, is as inappropriate as wedding guests to mourn at the wedding. And in verse 20, He says, and we read a moment ago, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and then they will fast in that day. This is most likely one of the earliest instances of Jesus talking about his upcoming death. And it's really an allusion to Isaiah 53 when it speaks of the suffering servant being taken away violently. But before we go on, you might have missed another amazing claim. And that is this. His followers are like wedding guests. And Jesus said to them, can the wedding guest fast while the bridegroom is with them? That's going back to the disciples, those who are following Jesus. Can the disciples fast while Jesus is with them? Again, the magnitude of a wedding celebration in that day, it's huge. It's all weak. It is the center of life. And the wedding guests know that they are not just on the invitation list. They are in. They are there. They are with the bridegroom. They've not just been invited and had to RSVP in the negative. They are there and present and they are welcomed in his presence. Jesus is saying he's the bridegroom, but he's also saying his followers are the wedding guest. Brothers and sisters, I don't know uh, if you've ever uh, wanted to be, in a, be invited to a wedding but weren't, and you kind of felt left out. Does anybody ever um, know that you know, the bride and groom only have 100 you know, seats in the church and you know, 100 seats at the big dinner? And if you don't get invited and you think you're close to the bride, to the groom. But here Jesus says, no, you're in there. You're not you're not not invited. You are there. And this picture echoes Exodus 24 when the elders of Israel came into the presence of God and they saw that they were not destroyed, but they were accepted. You know what they did? They ate and drank because in Exodus 24, 
God had been making himself known as the holy God and no one could come into his presence. And yet we see the elders of Israel come into the presence of God, but they're not destroyed and they eat and drink because a sacrifice is being made so that those who are sinful can be in the presence of the Holy One. Well, Jesus goes on to expand his answer not only by painting this picture of the joy of a wedding feast, but also by speaking two short parables, two illustrations involving clothing and wine. And in doing so, he's making clear not only the radical nature of his mission, but also of his call, his call to those to follow him. And so we see in verses 21 and 22 an absolute call is involved when it comes to following Jesus. Something new has arrived. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. It's the image of a new piece of clothing, cloth. But also there's the new wine and no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins and the wine is destroyed and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. These illustrations, if you're tracking along with this wedding, are appropriate because what happens at a wedding? There are special clothes and there's the celebratory drinking of wine, especially in that culture. And so these two parables are common sense about the incompatibility, the danger of mixing old and new. And the implication here is a new age has arrived where the practices are going to uh, to change. Now, we need to make it clear. Jesus is not rejecting the Old Testament. After all, he came to fulfill, not to abolish He is saying that in him, the new which the Old Testament is looking forward to and which John in particular has heralded has come. And it means that the old practices, some of the old practices are no longer appropriate. And so with something new has arrived, Jesus having arrived, everything will change. Because it's just not something new that's arrived, it's someone has arrived. Jesus is saying to his followers, if I come into your life, I will change everything. I will not help the old, but rather I will give you the new. Jesus, as I hope we know, is not about helping you become a better you, but rather about making you a new you. Jesus is not your assistant. Jesus is not your consultant. He's not some contact person on your contact list. No, he is your savior and he's your Lord. With this illustration of new cloth and new wine and the radical nature of the change that Jesus is bringing, it's like this. To help out with an illustration that may be more appropriate. Jesus is not a new app that the app store has available for us. 
Jesus is a new operating system. Jesus is not a religious fix for us. He's not a Sunday morning fling. Jesus is not the 911 operator that we call when we're in a jam. Of course he is that, but that's not completely, absolutely everything that he is. It's, Jesus is saying to, his, to those who are asking this question, it's all or nothing with me. You're either all in or you're all out. And we saw that with Levi getting up from the tax collector's booth and following Jesus. Jesus is saying either I'm Lord of your life or I'm not in your life. Jesus refuses to be part of your life. Many of you all are familiar with, you know, well, what are your priorities? Well, it's God and then family and then uh, church and then work. You know, Jesus is not like on some top down chart, nor is it like a pie chart that, you know, Jesus is important. So he's got 51% of my life and my work has got this and my family's got this. No, Jesus has got the whole whole pie and so you are at work um, walking with the Lord and you're at home walking with the Lord. Jesus is not some app. He's the new system. He's the new operating system that reorients everything. These parables are a warning to us. Are we going to just add Jesus to our life? Our old life? Is Jesus going to do some spring cleaning, uh, some fix up the trim, some repainting? These parables, these illustrations of, of new cloth and new wine and a new operating system are meant to warn us and to ask us, am I all or nothing with Jesus? To be sure, those who are all with Jesus still struggle and still sin and still fall on their face and still some days look like Jesus is the last person that they're thinking about. Absolutely. But fundamentally, has a change been made? Are you still running on your old operating system or has it been wiped clean and there's a new one in place? So what is this text tell us it says in the presence of Jesus it is not appropriate to fast rather it's appropriate to feast because the Lord is present with us well to conclude I'd like to bring us back around to the three images present in our text these three images of this wedding of this clothing of this wine are images of the consummation of our salvation. They're images of heaven. Think about the wedding that we read about in Revelation 19. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And what will we be wearing? We'll be clothed in Christ's righteousness. And wine... Isaiah 25, Isaiah is given a look into the future coming salvation and he says this, 
On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. Well, brothers and sisters, the question is this. How do we get a place at the table at this wedding banquet because I don't know about you but I want to be at this kind of banquet I want to be there well we've got to be dressed for the occasion right this is the gospel that Jesus was stripped naked publicly humiliated so that you and I would be fully clothed And be able to stand in the presence of the Lord. And how do we get to drink this new wine? This well-aged wine? This well-refined wine? How do we get to drink the wine? It's because Jesus drank the bitter wine of God's wrath. That's how we get to drink. Because Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath in our place. Brothers and sisters, God is with us and for us in Christ. And in Christ, God is not making things better. He's making all things new. And it begins with you. Let's pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word to us, your people, this morning. And we thank you that it is, at times, a radical word. It is a word that we would not expect. It's, not a, it's a word that we ourselves wouldn't write. Father, we thank you that in Christ there is joy. To be sure, we follow a crucified and risen Savior, so we are on the path of suffering and sorrow now. But just like our Savior, there is joy in His presence as we walk with Him. Oh, Father, would you enable us individually and as a church to understand the times and the seasons, to know when it's a time to rejoice and when it's time to mourn. Father, we thank you that we have joy everlasting, no matter the present circumstances in Christ. And we thank you that he is with us and for us through the person and work of his Holy Spirit. And we give you thanks and praise and pray in his name. Amen.